Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. So also will it be with this evil generation. Amen. Let's join together for prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the privilege that is ours to be able to sing your praises. And on this Father's Day, this song reminded us of what a great Father we have. Thank you that you're the ultimate one. Thank you that you're the perfect one. And I pray that you would help us as we navigate together through these scriptures, perhaps a difficult passage, that you would have for each one of us a stronger, stronger desire to let the Lord Jesus Christ be the center of our lives and to recognize that we can do nothing at all apart from him. So I thank you for what it is that you'll do through your word, through the power of your Holy Spirit in our midst here this morning. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. We're in Matthew chapter 12 right now, studying through the book of Matthew, and we're going to be looking the scripture that was just read, verses 38 through 45. And now, one of the things I'd like to do as we go through a book study is to get the context, and it continues. It keeps building and building. And so by this time, we're able to see that antagonism toward the Lord Jesus is mounting. We're able to see that there are those who are totally hostile to the Lord Jesus, and it's getting worse and worse. They want to get rid of him. They want to destroy what it is that he's trying to do. His critics have been embarrassed by Jesus' comebacks to their cutting remarks and their hostility. The Lord Jesus could see right through them. They would try yet again to try to make him look foolish in the eyes of the people, and yet again, they will not succeed. So we have, first of all, a request for a sign that as you look at verse 38, it doesn't seem like it's a terrible request. It's a request to see a sign from the Lord Jesus. 
We're going to find out, though, that there's a lot more to it than that. They're not just asking for a sign to maybe give more credibility to a growing belief that they have in the Lord Jesus. Uh, There's actually a, a big problem here. So this request for a sign, from whom is that request? It says, some of the scribes and Pharisees. Smells a little bit like a committee, maybe an all-star team of the scribes and the Pharisees because the Lord Jesus has been putting down those who are criticizing him and asking some questions of him. But now here comes this group to him and asks the question. And immediately we know that their motives are not good in asking the question. We know it because other times, for example, in Luke chapter eleven sixteen, it says others tested him by asking for a sign from heaven. This is a test of the Lord Jesus. This is not an inquiry to find information or to have a belief grow. They're actually trying to trick up the Lord Jesus. In Matthew chapter 16, a little bit later on, the Pharisees are joined this time by the Sadducees. Normally, they didn't see together at all. But they came to Jesus and tested him again by asking him to show them a sign from heaven. And the Lord Jesus always knows what's in their hearts, and he understands what it is that they're trying to do. Their hostility to Jesus has been clearly stated many times by now in our study of Matthew. I like the way that John MacArthur puts it. He says, By the time the scribes and Pharisees asked Jesus to show them a special sign, their opposition to him had already hardened into implacable hatred. Love that word implacable. It's implacable hatred. Synonyms for that are ruthless or cruel or unrelenting or cold-hearted or callous. So we've got a group of individuals who have decided they will do everything they can to destroy the ministry and the person of the Lord Jesus himself. Earlier in the chapter, in Matthew chapter 12, verse 14, it says, but the Pharisees went out and plotted how they might kill Jesus. And so when they come up with the question here, teacher, we wish to see a sign from you, we understand what's coming from their heart. This is not an honest question. It is not a sincere question. It is an attempt to trick the Lord Jesus and make him look bad with the people. In fact, quoting again from another commentator, it says, because of their repeated embarrassment in failing to prove Jesus was either teaching or doing anything unscriptural, The Pharisees were concerned about losing their reputation with the people. They wanted to be sure the next attempt to discredit him would succeed, and they believed that demanding a special sign from him would be certain to prove that he was an imposter and deceiver and would save their own reputations. So you can see this is a setup. And what they're attempting to do, part of their plot to kill the Lord Jesus, they want to turn the people against him. They want to make him look bad. And so here came the request. Starts out with the word teacher, probably sarcastic, hypocritical. Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. And they're really looking for a sign that he couldn't do. They're looking for a sign that's going to make him look bad or a response from him that will make him look bad or or a denial that, no, he can't do that. He only picks the times and the places and the kinds of things he wants to do. But now they're, they're trying to set him up for a fall. What kind of a sign would they be looking for? They would be looking for, if they were sincere, a sign that he was who he claimed to be. 
that he would be the son of man, the son of David, the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one, the king, the one who the demon-possessed men in chapter 8 referred to as the son of God. If all of these things you are claiming and are being claimed about you, if all of those are true, then show us a sign that will demonstrate that. As I was studying through this, I asked myself the question, what more did they need? What more could he do than he had already done that they would ask him for a sign? It started out in chapter 8 with the disciples asking a question, what sort of man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? And I'm sure for the disciples, they'd seen plenty of signs by now. What more could they do? In chapter 9, verse 26, it says, the report of this went through all that district. What is the this referred to here? The raising of Jairus' daughter from the dead. And the report of that went throughout the district. How do you top that? How do you top that? What kind of a sign could he do more than raising someone from the dead? Chapter 9, verse 31, it says, But they went away and spread his fame through all that district. Again, who are the they? It's two blind men who could now see. And the word is getting out. The Lord Jesus is doing one thing after another, and then it's not just one thing, it's many things. Chapter 9, verse 33, And the crowds marveled, saying, Never was anything like this seen in Israel. Again, what is the this there for? Anything like what? Well, in this case, it was like a mute man oppressed by a demon being delivered from the demon and then speaking. Matthew chapter 9, verse 35. Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the king, kingdom and healing, it says, every disease and sickness. What more does somebody have to do to gain the attention of those who are saying, well, can you show us a sign? What had he been doing over and over and over again? Matthew chapter 11, and I'm just summarizing where we've been in our study of Matthew already. Matthew chapter 11, verses 4 and 5, Jesus replied, these are to the disciples of John the Baptist, go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is preached to the poor. And we've only seen a handful of these things. They may have happened by the thousands. Earlier in our chapter, Matthew chapter 12, it says, all the people were astonished and said, could this be the son of David? They're requesting a sign. Can you show us something special? Show us something significant. What more could he do? Let me illustrate it. I'm sure some of you are thinking that that's me after a week at the beach. That's, that's actually not me. That's, that's someone else. But picture this. Picture a baseball scout, and he's trying out a player. It's a major league scout, and he wants to see if this player is everything that everybody says that he is. It certainly looks like he's got some physical tools, but they want to try him out. So they get the best 
pitcher in their organization to come because they want to find out if this guy can hit or not. And the best pitcher is told, do everything in your power. Throw everything that you have. Use all your pitches. Let's see whether this guy can hit or not. And he throws him 10 pitches, and all 10 of them are tape measure home runs. If you don't know what that is, it's a very, very long home run. It could be out of the stadium. And then they say, well, let's try him out and see if he can run. So he runs 100 meters in nine seconds. That's a um, world record, by the way. But on top of that, he's carrying a badly overweight first base coach on his back. And then he stands with his back to the outfield fence, 420 feet away from home plate, throws one on a clothesline to home plate, scorching the catcher's glove hand in the process. And after that, the scout says, okay, show us what, he, what you can do. And if you're this, this guy up here, you're saying, what do you mean what I can I just showed you what I can do. What more do you want me to do? Take it back to Matthew. And by the way, that's a baseball illustration because it's Father's Day. So, fathers, I want you to remember that. And the rest of you, excuse the uh, baseball illustration. That's the point that's here with the Lord Jesus. They show us a sign. Well, what more does he need to show? Well, in Matthew 16 and Luke chapter 11, there also there's an account where Jesus was asked to show a sign. Two words were added. Show us a sign from heaven. A sign from heaven. Okay, none of these were necessarily from heaven in the sense that they're coming down from the sky or something along that line. Maybe that's what they're looking for here. I surveyed some of the commentators, and they had some conjectures of what they might possibly be looking for if they were looking for a sign from heaven. Maybe they were looking for a comet, for Jesus to command a comet to all of a sudden appear. Uh, That's one possibility. Maybe it was, let's have some lightning. Let's have a lightning and thunder show. That's what some of them would suggest, that they're looking for Jesus to do that. Or maybe sudden darkness. Or maybe food raining down from heaven. That might not have been exactly what they had in mind for the food raining down from heaven, but maybe like the manna used to be there in the morning. uh, Something along that line. Or if not that maybe causing the sun to stand still and not to move throughout the day, or maybe a constellation to change its configuration, maybe turn Orion's belt into a necklace or something along that line in the constellations. Maybe they could have done that. Or maybe the moon, Jesus could have caused the moon to race across the sky. Or maybe a great demonstration of power. Maybe it could... (laughs) banner coming down from, sorry, it's Father's Day, remember? It's a, had to keep the fathers into the, into the message a little bit. What more could Jesus do than what he'd already done? Even if it was calling something down from heaven, it would pale in significance to the things that he had done. And he could have done any of them. Could have done any of them by snapping his finger. So here was Jesus' response that we see in verses 39 through 42. Because the Lord Jesus will respond to this. And again, this shows the insincerity of the request. Because immediately we see an indictment on the character of the questioners. There's an indictment on the character of those who are asking the question. They're identified as a wicked and adulterous generation. That's who seeks for a sign. God's word makes it clear that God is not so pleased with seeing is believing 
as much as he is in believing is seeing. These people are saying, I'll believe if I can see something. And they were lying anyway. They wouldn't have believed even if they had seen more than they had already seen. But believing is seeing. When we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, our eyes are opened up and he gives us more and more and more. That's the title of the message today. It wasn't a misprint. It's believing is seeing, not seeing is believing. Here's what Jesus said to Thomas. He said, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. Because believing is seeing. Jesus had a lot to say, a lot to show, but he was the ultimate teacher. He was the ultimate prophet from God. All they needed to do was to believe. But this is Jesus' response, first of all, an indictment on the character of the questioners because they were truly a wicked and adulterous generation. That's who seeks a sign. No, we don't really believe you. We need more. We need you to keep doing more and more and more. And if something is done that I don't particularly like, then I'm not necessarily going to keep believing. People want to be God. They want God to measure up to their standards and what they would like to do. But again, it's in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7. We live by faith, not by sight. There's a whole element of faith that has to come into Christianity. It has to come into our belief system. I'm quoting from one of the commentaries. It says, of course, by giving this sign, the sign of Jonah that Jesus alluded to, by giving this sign, Jesus was demonstrating that they had already decided to reject him. For him to fulfill this sign, he would have to be rejected, die, and be buried. By the time this sign would be accomplished, it would be too late for them to accept his right to rule over the nation as king. And you can see the relationship between God and the Jews was often likened to a marriage. We see this all through the Old Testament. The apostasy, the falling away from him, the idolatry, they're often presented as adultery, spiritual unfaithfulness to God. That's why Jesus calls them an evil and adulterous generation. This generation that was present then at that particular time, but they were just like some of the former generations, they reacted exactly the same way. They went off and did whatever they wanted to do. God could send the message through the prophets. They rejected it. They were not believers. We see that over and over again. And so Jesus says no sign is going to be given except one. One sign, the sign of the prophet Jonah. Just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And sometimes people struggle with that. They struggle with that at Easter. They struggle with it here in passages like this. Three days and three nights. Uh, it wasn't three days and three nights. If we celebrate Easter uh, by celebrating Good Friday as the crucifixion and then Sunday, that's not three days and three nights. People get hung up on that. So let me let me give you a couple of quotations, I think, that will hopefully give us understanding with regard to this. Here's one. Just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so our Lord predicted that he would be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. This raises a problem. If, as generally believed, Jesus was buried on Friday afternoon and rose again on Sunday morning, how can it be said that he was three days and three nights in the womb? Excuse me, in the tomb. The answer is that in Jewish reckoning, 
Any part of a day and night counts as a complete period. A day and a night make an ona, spelled O-N-A-H. We'll see it in print in just a moment. And a part of an ona is as the whole. And D.A. Carson, great Bible scholar, puts it this way. First, he repeats what I just said. In rabbinic thought, a day and a night make an ona, and a part of an ona is as the whole. Thus, according to Jewish tradition, three days and three nights need mean no more than three days or the combination of a part of three separate days. It doesn't require 72 hours. It requires only parts of those three days. So for Easter, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, parts of those days, the Jews called that three days and three nights. We don't do it that way, but that's the way they did it, and that's the way we understand it now. Well, no sign was going to be given except one, the sign of the prophet Jonah, and that sign would be that the Lord Jesus would be three days and three nights, not in the belly of a great fish, but in the belly of the earth, and he would come back to life again after that. Now, what we have before us here, we have the scribes and the Pharisees are compared unfavorably with the men of Nineveh. We go back to Jonah's time. The men of Nineveh, Gentiles, no less, and for the Jews to be compared to them unfavorably, the Gentiles had it over you Jewish people who are here right now. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with that generation that was here right now in Matthew, the men of Nineveh are going to rise up at the judgment and they're going to condemn all of you people. Why are they going to do that? They're going to do that because they repented at the preaching of one man, one prophet, Jonah. He came representing God. He told them what was going on. He told them they had to repent and they did. And they were Gentiles. And something greater than Jonah is here, namely the Lord Jesus. And you're not repenting. You're not paying any heed. You're not believing at all. You're giving him a hard time. You're trying to destroy him. You're trying to trick him. You're trying to ask him for a sign so that you can discredit him. So Jesus and multiple signs and wonders, not just one miracle involving a great fish, but the resurrection of Jesus is on the way, and all these other things are there, plus all of his teaching are already there. So the men of Nineveh at the day of judgment can come up to you, this evil generation, this adulterous generation, they're going to come up to you and say, we repented, what was the matter with you? And not only the men of Nineveh, The queen of Sheba, identified here as the queen of the south, same thing is going to be happening there. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment to condemn this generation. By the way, she also was a Gentile. But why is she going to do that? Why will she rise up to condemn this group of people that were there before them at that time? Because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, it says... Something greater than Solomon is here. What would that be? Once again, that would be the Lord Jesus Christ. Now let's fast forward to today. Wicked, evil generation, adulterous generation at that particular time. We fast forward today. 
we have an inerrant, inspired, infallible, authoritative word of God that details all of the things that happened in the Old Testament, including what happened with the men of Nineveh and Jonah and the Queen of the South, and the resurrection and the teaching about the resurrection and the teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ. We've got all of that today. We've got a record of what Jesus did and what Jesus said. We know even more than that evil generation at that time knew. We know a lot more because we can look back to the resurrection and the teaching of the apostles and we can look and and see so many things that they couldn't even see at that particular time. And they, we're told, were very vulnerable to the coming judgment. And they've got to ask some serious questions. If you've never placed your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you've never admitted to being a sinner in need of a Savior, if you've never asked the Lord Jesus to be your substitute and take your guilt and penalty on himself so that you can be saved, if you've never by an act of your will committed your life to the Lord Jesus Christ, Here's a probing question. Do you think it will be better or worse for you at judgment than it will be for these scribes and Pharisees described here as an evil and adulterous generation? Is it going to be better for you or is it going to be worse for you? I think the answer is pretty obvious. There is more accountability on anybody today who has all of this information, much of which they didn't even have then. It's not going to go well for them at judgment, Jesus is saying. How's it going to go for you? if you've rejected what the Lord Jesus has done. Second part of Luke 12, 48 says, From everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded. And from the one who has been entrusted with much, much more will be asked. Every one of us has been given a huge amount of light. By light, I mean the illumination that God has given to us for what is true in his word. God's Holy Spirit has done that for us. The lights have been turned on. We've been given a huge amount of light. If you reject that light, do you think your story is going to have a happy ending? That's what Jesus is saying here to these people who have much less light than we do. It's not going to be a happy ending for them. What's it going to be for us if any of us are rejecting the light of what Jesus has to offer. Luke 16:31. Jesus is speaking here to someone who says, well, maybe somebody could go back from the dead and tell the people how bad it is here. And he said to them, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. Unbelief breeds further unbelief. We need to be very, very careful if we find ourselves rejecting the light that we've been given because God's not under obligation to keep giving us more. God will give more light to the people who respond, to those who say, yes, I I see what's going on here. I want more and more. God is obligated to do that, and he will at that time give them more. Then we come across something in our reading. As you look at verse 43, you see verse 43 looks like it's an entirely different subject. But it's not. It really follows from what we've just seen with the sign of Jonah that is here. And this is a warning to replace bad with good. You see again in verse 43, let me read these verses again. 
when the unclean spirit, many of the translations, and for years you've, you've learned the, the word demon there instead, when the demon or the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits, more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. So also will it be with this evil generation. He's still talking about that evil generation. If you look back there, you will see that generation mentioned. This is now the fourth time. Still on the same subject, those Pharisees and those scribes that are testing, tempting the Lord Jesus, there's a message for them as well. This is a short parable involving unclean spirits or demons, instructive in that we can learn something. First of all, let's learn something about demons As we go through, we can learn a lot of things that are going on, but a couple of comments. Demons can exist inside or outside people. Sometimes we don't grasp that. Demons don't necessarily have to be driven out of a person. This demon or unclean spirit had gone out of the person and would return to the house, that means the person, in which it used to be. So it came out, it came and went when it wanted to. doesn't have to be a formal exorcism. doesn't have to be something that happens. The demon comes and goes at will. Demons can travel. It's pretty obvious from just this text. There's a lot more we could say about demons, but we're limiting ourselves to what's here before us. They can communicate with each other. Each demon has a separate entity. They're able to remember and make plans. They remember our past. They evaluate and make decisions. They know where we are vulnerable. They plot their strategy and their attacks. They're able to combine forces. They vary in degree. Seven demons more evil than the first. There's a lot more in the rest of scriptures about demons, but just from this passage, it tells us a little bit about them. But here's the thing I want us to really remember. And that is, remember, we don't have to fear them. Sometimes you get on the subject of demons or evil spirits and this type of thing, and people get very uneasy. They get very nervous. They don't want to hear about that. But we don't have to worry about them. We acknowledge the reality. We respect the harm they can do if we don't resist in the power of the Lord Jesus. The Apostle John, you dear children are from God and have overcome them because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. So none of us have to be anxious, provided we do things God's way. We resist the devil and he will flee from us. We don't allow him to get a foot in the door. We don't dabble in the occult. We don't allow ourselves to be watching things and bringing things into our home, maybe on a screen of a computer or a television or something else. We don't allow that to happen because we don't want to give any inroads. God has told us that that's not wise for us to be doing that. And if you're wondering, if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, can you ever be oppressed by a demon or can you be possessed by a demon? I like what Thomas Feigert has said. Demons 
can return to re-enter the body of a person who has not become a Christian. This man's body, the one before us, was swept and put in order but was still empty. Had the man been saved, the three persons of the Godhead would be permanently there preventing entrance by the demons. A house divided against itself cannot stand. If God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit are indwelling an individual, that individual is not going to be possessed by a demon. But here's the point. Here's the principle. The principle before us is that it is not good enough to just remove the bad. It's got to be replaced by the good. That's what happened here. There was a vacuum in this life, susceptible to far worse than the original sins or habits or priorities. When we simply get rid of something bad and don't replace it with something good, we're still open for something worse to come in. And that's the principle that is seen here with evil spirits or demons. That's what happened to this one particular individual. If you have an NIV study Bible still, you'll see a note uh, on Luke 11.25 where it says, A life reformed but lacking God's presence and power is open to reoccupancy by evil. In other words, it's not enough just to reform It's not enough to just say, I resolve that I'm not going to do this anymore. I'm going to get rid of this out of my life. I know this doesn't belong here. I know God doesn't want this in my life. I'm going to get rid of that. Don't just get rid of it. Replace it. Replace it with something that is far better. Someone has said in this parable, Jesus vividly and frighteningly pictures the consequences of religion and moral reformation apart from a right relationship with him. Morality, apart from the living Christ, can never be more than a sham. And the more it is relied on, the more dangerous it becomes. And there are people even apart from Christ who decide, I want to live better, I want to do better, I want to live a more moral life. I know I've got to get rid of some of these things, these bad habits. I need to get rid of all of that. That's not enough. It needs to be replaced with something that's better. Someone else has said the Jews had asked a sign from heaven that should decisively prove that Jesus was the Messiah and satisfy their unbelief. He replies that though he should give them such a sign, a proof conclusive and satisfactory, and though for a time they should profess to believe and apparently reform, yet such was the obstinacy of their unbelief and wickedness that they would soon return to their former course and become worse and worse. You see, God's not asking us for New Year's resolutions. The world makes resolutions. And for a time, some people can keep them. Many people cannot. God's saying, I don't want you to resolve that I'm not going to do this anymore. I want you to resolve that you're not going to do something anymore and replace it with something that is far better. And that's the principle that is here. The principle of replacing bad with good, not leaving a vacuum so something worse comes in. How about some nice trades? Let me suggest some. I'm really just priming the pump. It's God the Holy Spirit's job to tell us how we're applying this in our life, but just to get us thinking along this line. Let's say you resolve to cut down on watching so much television. And I'm not going to say television is bad. Everybody throw out your, your TVs. But I am saying this. Obviously, there are some things that are bad on television. And the consuming habit of TV viewing is something that is bad as well. 
So you resolve to cut down on watching TV. Well, now you've got more time on your hands than you used to. And you've got to replace that time you have on your hands. How are you going to replace that? My suggestion, replace that with some spiritual disciplines. Maybe doing some more study of God's word, reading or viewing edifying material. Maybe you've got more time. Now maybe you'll come out tonight and worship with us as we study the book of Revelation. Maybe you'll come out on prayer meeting night on Wednesday night. Maybe you'll come to something else that you've never done before because you haven't had that time because you haven't allowed yourself to have that kind of time. Praying privately, corporately more than ever before. But if you don't replace that bad with something good, something worse could come. And there are horrible things that are lurking, always hanging around, looking to get a foot in the door. Don't leave yourselves with time that isn't being used for something good. How about this trade? You resolve to get rid of online pornography. Now, that's a great resolution. If you're involved at all in any kind of pornography, get rid of it. But don't just get rid of it. Replace it with something that is going to be better. Replace the bad with the good. You know, if you've got a fascination with a computer, there are online correspondence courses that will teach you God's Word. There are a lot of wholesome things that are there. Or, if the temptation is too great, you may need to get rid of the computer. That's another story. That's dealing with temptation. You may need to get rid of that or set monitors on that or have accountability to somebody in your home so that you're not getting involved in, in things you shouldn't be. Here's another trait. You resolve to lessen the degree of sports involvement. What? You resolve to lessen your involvement in sports. Why? It's Father's Day. So you can spend more time with your wife. Otherwise, who knows what you might replace that time with? And again, I'm not saying there's something, there's anything wrong with being involved in sports, but I think some of us will say it's overdone and we need to cut back because there are more important things to do. But if you find one of those important things to do is to spend more time with your wife, more time with the family, if you don't do that, what might you replace that with? You're competitive. You love the sports. You love that kind of thing. Maybe you'll replace it with gambling, bar hopping, carousing. Uh, all of those things could be there ready to go. Replace the good, or excuse me, replace the bad with something good. Here's the last one. Stop complaining. That's a great resolve, isn't it? Stop complaining. Stop muttering, grumbling all the time. What do you replace it with? Start encouraging, being grateful, expressing thanksgiving. If all you do is to stop complaining, you may fill that vacuum with gossiping and backbiting and lewdness or profanity or all kinds of other things. Illustrate this one further time. In 1999, 25-year-old Christopher Miller was arrested after he forced employees into the back room of the Stride Right shoe store on Hooper Avenue in Toms River, New Jersey. Anybody know Toms River, New Jersey? Where's Pastor Rich? Well, we'll talk about that later. He and I will. After a 15-year sentence on Friday, March 21, 2014, Miller was released from Southwood State Prison in New Jersey. 
The very next day, Miller, now 40 years old, took a bus from Atlantic City to Tom's River and went to the same shoe store, the one that's pictured. Employees tell police that he entered the store, demanded cash, telling two workers to go to the back room. When the employees refused, Miller became agitated, took the cash register drawer, which had $389. He then took the workers' cell phones and fled on foot. Police say he was found a few blocks away with the cash stashed in a gutter, the phone in a garbage can, all the phones. Tom's River Police Chief Mitchell Little speculated, maybe prison life is the only life he knows. And the only thing he could think of was going back to the same store and doing the same crime again, getting caught and going back where he was taken care of and told what to do and getting meals and shelter and everything else. Christopher Miller didn't know how to replace the bad with good. So he reverted to the bad again, this time with greater consequences. Now he's got a 16-year term that he's facing. We know better, and we are accountable for knowing better. So did the Pharisees. They knew better than they did. But looking again at the end of verse 45, what's going on there, the state of that person is worse than the first, so also will it be with this evil generation. It's going to be worse for them. The Pharisees were very, very good at resolutions. They had hundreds and hundreds of them. They needed to replace the things they eliminated with something that's very good. It's not about what you give up for Lent. It's about what you gain when you give up. And that's the point that's being made here. Give up and then take on the Lord Jesus. He's the only one that really matters. Heavenly Father, thank you for the teaching of our Lord Jesus. Thank you that this generation, which was not a good one, an evil and adulterous generation throughout this passage knew better We know even better than they did. And there's no excuse for us not to replace evil with good, not to just resolve, but to live for the Lord Jesus in his power and his strength. And we thank you in his name. Amen.